Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Hey there, happy Mother's Day. Welcome again to church. We're so glad to have you here uh, joining us from around the city, around the state of West Virginia, maybe around the country or even around the world. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm Pastor Matt. I would love to meet you next time we're able to gather in person, uh, but I wanted to give you a little update on where we are in our in-person gatherings and our plans. Uh, this coming Wednesday, we'll be rolling out a plan that our pastors, our staff, our board, we've all worked together on, uh, rolling out a plan not so much much that has dates, but phases. We're actually gonna have a four-phase plan for reopening our campus. And uh, you know, there's part of us that wanna hurry and open as fast as possible. And then there's another part of us that says, no, we need to slow down and take our time. Uh, we just want you to know we're trying to be wise. We're following what the governor is recommending, the CDC, the health department, and others. Uh, but this Wednesday, if you would like to receive that plan in your inbox, you, you can be part of the pastor's all-church email. If you're not all Already, you can go to biblecenterchurch.com and subscribe. At the bottom of our website, under subscribe, there's pastors, all church email. And if you'll click there and give us your email address, we'll get that to you this Wednesday. Uh, we were one of the first churches to close our in-campus gatherings, and it's likely that we'll be one of the last churches to open our gatherings. But there's a lot of steps between now and then with our groups and, and other gatherings and classes. And so you're going to want to see that plan this coming Wednesday. I invite you to take your Bible or your Bible app and open with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. There's Genesis and then Exodus. You can also Google it, Exodus chapter one. The verses are gonna be up here on the screen. But today we launch a new series entitled Divergent, What in the World Do We Do Now? Divergent, what in the world do we do now? Now, my older two children asked if this series had something to do with the movie Divergent, and the answer is absolutely not. It has nothing to do with that. But this idea of divergent, meaning that sometimes in life we're heading one direction and there's events out of our control, and so it causes us to head in a completely different direction. And that feels to me a lot of like where we are today. I love the book of Exodus for many reasons. I'm excited to teach it. I love teaching stories. But most of all right now, as your pastor, I believe that the book of Exodus speaks to our current situation of transition and uncertainty and confusion. So we're gonna take 15 weeks. We're gonna take our time meandering our way through the book of Exodus. And every single day, you'll see the nine online devotional videos come out. We're gonna try to cover almost every book, every chapter, every verse in the book of Exodus. So I trust it'll be a blessing and a help to you. Here's what I want you to learn from the series in Exodus. Here's what I would like you to learn. Uh, one, I'd like you to learn that God goes with us and cares for us through times of transition, uncertainty, and confusion. He has always been and always will be the only constant, the only one true normal when his people emerge from seasons of plague, pandemic, and aimless wandering. That's what I want you to know. That's what we're gonna be learning almost every single week. And so that's not the main idea of today's sermon as much as it's the main idea of the entire series. But there's also some things I want you to do. Here's some things I, I'm praying that God will, will work in your life to do or do even more because of this series. First of all, that you'll know God more, that you'll know God more. Secondly, you'll trust God more. 
The more we know God, the more we trust God. And then that we'll love God more, that we'll fall in love with the God of the Exodus. My prayer is that you'll love the Lord with all your heart as you come out, as we come out of this series, and that we'll live for God more. There's a lot of practical lessons in the book and some very, there's a lot of similarities between the way they reacted to crisis and the way many of us are reacting to crisis. And so my prayer is that we'll live for the Lord, that virtue uh, would be part of this series. But ultimately it's through seeing Jesus as our only hope for salvation, transformation and restoration. Even though the book of Exodus, the events occur 1500 years before the birth of Christ, Jesus is all throughout this book. And so you're gonna wanna hang on to your seats. You wanna fasten your seatbelts and be ready because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the longings of the book of Exodus. But today, as we jump into chapters one and the first part of chapter two, the timing is perfect the way God has worked this out because we're actually gonna be looking here today on Mother's Day at Moses's mother, Moses's mother. And the title of today's message is Seeing God's Grace Through Moms. The way the message is gonna go is gonna go like this. I'm gonna share the story of Moses's mom. And then afterwards, I'm gonna give you one main point, one big idea that you can take with you. And I trust primarily, it'll be a help and an encouragement uh, to you who either are moms or all of us who have moms. Let's go ahead and dive into the story. Exodus chapter one, verse one says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. Israel and Jacob are the same person according to Genesis 32 and Genesis 35, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. These are what will become the tribes or the families of Israel. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. So this is the big family, 70, leave what we now call Israel, the promised land. They go to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. But Egypt is there. They have Joseph, their youngest or second to youngest brother. Joseph was already in, in Egypt and Joseph was going to take care of them. He was going to rescue them. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. Let's not forget that word. They multiplied greatly and increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. If you're taking notes, you wanna write down the year 1876. 1876, actually BC, uh, not AD. In 1876, that's the year that Jacob and his children and his children's children and their wives, they all went down to Egypt. Now, the Bible is relatively silent for the next 390 years. So for almost 400 years, the Bible says nothing about what happened to the family of Israel in Egypt, except that verse seven says, they multiplied greatly and increased in numbers. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 37 tells us that by the time of Moses, there were 600,000 men beside women and children. That means there could have been two to three million people in Egypt that were from the family of Israel, but they multiplied, they were fruitful, they were taking dominion. 
The wording of Exodus chapter one sounds a lot like the wording of Genesis chapter one. In Genesis chapter one and verse 28, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to rule and take dominion. And so Moses purposely uses the same wording in Exodus 1 as he uses in Genesis 1 to show us that the children of Israel were actually fulfilling the promises or the command of God to Adam and Eve. But Moses is also reminding us that they're fulfilling the promises that God gave to Abraham. As we read Genesis chapter 12, 15, 17, and 22, we're gonna learn that we find that God promises Abraham that he was going to give his descendants and make his descendants into a great nation that would bless the entire world. So according to history, for about 300 years, the children of Israel would have prospered in the land of Israel. It was a great, or excuse me, Egypt. It was a great place. It was a safe place for them. But in their last hundred years, that last quarter of their time in Egypt, things turned south, things turned sour. Look with me at what happens in verse eight. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. You say, Pastor Matt, who was that Pharaoh? Who was that king of Egypt? Well, those of us who like to consider ourselves amateur historians or historian wannabes, uh, we can't read a verse like that without trying to figure out who was the king. It's actually not hard to figure out as we look in history. And, and I would encourage you to check your sermon notes. You can go to biblecenterchurch.com forward slash live, or they're also gonna be on the app. We've actually added an entire extra page this week of detail of who the pharaohs were in the 18th dynasty during the time of Moses. You're going to want to see that and find out when Moses was born and who lived when and who died when. It's really, really fascinating for a few of us. And so if you like that, uh, you're going to want to get the notes. But we see that God doesn't mention his name in the scriptures, doesn't mention the pharaoh's name. And I think that was on purpose. You see, pharaohs love to inscribe their name. They love to have their name carved in statues and monuments and great buildings. And here God is not even giving them a pass. He's not even giving them a mention. He's throwing shade on these men who were consumed with themselves. But notice how hard these pharaohs made it for Israel. We see here in verse nine. In verse nine, he says, one of the Pharaohs says, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And, it, and, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies. They'll fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Now it tells us two cities that the Israelites actually helped build uh, during that last hundred years of their 400 years in Egypt. 
Now, there were some Bible critics who say that the city of Ramses wasn't actually built until 200 years after Moses. And so for a number of years, there was this critique looming that scholars felt like they had to somehow defend why the city of Ramses is mentioned here. But then recently, uh, archaeologists have discovered that the city of Ramses is actually far older than Moses. Uh, But as many cities did, the new city would build on top of the old city. And with modern technology, we find that this is not only feasible, uh, but it's also uh, proven through archaeology. It's a misconception for us to say that the Israelites built the pyramids. Uh, I've said it before uh, growing up. I've heard others say it, but we don't ever want to say that because actually the Great Pyramids predates Israel and Egypt. It definitely predates Moses by about a thousand years. And so the Israelites did not build the Great Pyramids, but they did, did build some beautiful cities, some beautiful buildings and temples. But like most dictators, this Pharaoh was insecure and he was paranoid. He did not like foreigners being in his nation. And so over and over again, he made their lives bitter with all kinds of labor. He worked them harshlessly and ruthlessly. We can see it a little bit in the English translation, but in the Hebrew uh, version, the original uh, language that Exodus was written in, we find that, that actually it sounds, it's a, whole lot, it's a whole lot more interesting. Over and over again, Moses, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, uses words that almost sound like a repeat lashing, a crack of the whip against the people of Israel. And so a Hebrew, a Jew reading this would get the sense, not only through the words themselves, but even through the cadence of this verse, that they were not in a good situation. By the time we get to verse 15, we're now on a third Pharaoh of the 18th dynasty in Egypt. His name was Thutmose I. And it says in verse 15, the king of Egypt, Thutmose I, said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous. Uh, They give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. In these verses, we see to date in the Bible, the most evil man recorded in scripture, at least through this part of Exodus. He is evil of evils. Now you can just picture as the Pharaohs often had a a, a serpent coming out of their crown. You can just picture this man being a, a type, being very similar to Satan himself. You can hear the hiss of the serpent all the way back in the Garden of Eden the Satan certainly uses this man to accomplish his horrible purposes. King Thutmose I does not value life at all. And he does horrible things to the people of God. Just when we think it can't get worse, 
it gets worse. Verse 22, notice what happens next. Then Pharaoh, this is still Thutmose the first, gives this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is horrible. It doesn't even need much commentary. He's gone from infanticide to genocide. He's gone from telling the midwives to do something in secret to now telling all the Egyptian citizens and soldiers to do something in public. This man is evil. The story gets really, really bad here. But thankfully, this is when the hero steps into the story. This is a true story. This is a true hero, but I love what happens in chapter two. We've got to read it together in chapter two in verse one. It says, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, a good child, she hid him for three months. Just picture in your mind this young couple finding love, finding commitment, uh, whether it was an arranged marriage or of their own. Either way, they committed their lives to one another in the middle of slavery. We've tried to have some weddings here during the pandemic and, and they've been beautiful, they've been good, but it's hard in a nation like ours in a pandemic, let alone imagine during a culture of slavery. But God blessed their marriage with a little boy and this little boy, well, she, we don't find out that he's a little boy until after he's born, but God would use this little boy to do great things for the people of Israel and for the kingdom of God. Now, this woman is not mentioned by name in Exodus chapter one or Exodus chapter two. Her, her name doesn't actually appear until chapter six and verse 20. And her name is Jochebed. Jochebed. Uh, she's a seemingly ordinary woman, but God uses her and uses her ordinary faith to do extraordinary things. You can just imagine the emotions that went through her mind as she's carrying this baby full term. They didn't have ultrasounds in those days. And so she doesn't know until the baby's born, is it going to be a boy or a girl? And the worst news you could hear as a Hebrew woman is that during this time, during this time of genocide, that it's a boy. And so she finds out it's a boy. And you can picture as she does everything in her power, her and her husband to conceal and, and hide this little boy. And you can just picture as she's, she's huddled in a corner and singing lullabies to him constantly. Her nerves had to be frayed because if he got too loud or, or if it, the wrong person heard it, it could mean certain death. But notice what happens in verse three. In verse three, after three months, she realizes she can't hide him anymore. And when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. She makes a small floating basket and she puts her baby boy in the basket to float him down the river. Talk about us giving our children to God. Let's talk about the, the emotions of any of us dedicating our children to the Lord or giving our children up to the, the care of another phase of life. It's hard for any of us, let alone her circumstances. Sarah and I have a daughter, uh, our oldest daughter, Katie, is gonna be going off to college in a year. She's gonna be a senior in high school this year. 
and the emotions that are already going through our mind to think that, that we, we gave her up to the Lord when she was, before she was born, and now we're, we're giving her up to the Lord for this next phase of life. Uh, it's not easy. We're trying to encourage Katie to, to stay close, you know, for the next 40 years, just stay close to mom and dad. But, you know, the likelihood of that happening are, are next to none. And so it's, it's hard, but how much harder would it be for Jochebed to give up this little baby boy? Imagine as she closes the lid on that basket and she, when she gently laid her baby in the basket, a piece of her heart went in that basket also. Notice what happened in verse four. I'm convinced she had a plan. In verse four, it says, his sister, Moses' sister, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, Moses' sister, if you're taking notes, her name is Miriam. In another part of Exodus, we find out that she's an older sister. The Bible doesn't tell us how much older. Tradition says she's eight years older. So let's just say tradition is right. His eight-year-old sister follows Moses down the river. It wasn't safe for Jochebed, his mother, to follow him down the river, but she, she sends her daughter, her older daughter, with some instructions. That's the way I see it in my mind. When we get to heaven, we can find out how it actually happened. It said, then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. One of the questions I have is, did Jochebed know what time the Pharaoh's daughter was going to bathe every day? Did she know what time that she came out to that part of the river? Perhaps she did. Maybe she had this backup plan in case she did give birth to a son and maybe she scoped out the whole situation. Maybe even she took Miriam by the hand while she was carrying Moses and walked her down the side of the Nile to tell her exactly what to do and when to do it. But another image that comes to my mind is not only Miriam following baby Moses as he floats down the river, but also Jochebed back at home with her husband. Just picture her husband having to, to getting to hold his wife, who no doubt wants to run out of the house, who wants to run down the river, but that would jeopardize the, that would jeopardize the whole mission. It would jeopardize everything. People would know what she did on purpose. So it couldn't be her. It had to be her little girl. And as he holds Jochebed crying in the house, more, crying more severely than she's ever cried before, they don't know right away What's going to happen? Let's look with me in verse six through 10. We're gonna see how the story ends. We'll see what happens. It says, she opened it and saw the baby he was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, that's Miriam, asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go, probably instructed by her mom, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. We don't know how old that is. One report says that would have happened at age five. Another report says that would have happened around age 12. Either way, his biological mother in disguise gets to raise him and teach him and indoctrinate him early on. This is a beautiful picture of the providence of God. 
And she, that's his adopted mother, Pharaoh's daughter, she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Imagine as the princess oohs and awes the way we ooh and awe when we see a baby. Imagine as she opens the basket and Miriam's wondering what's gonna happen next. And God in his love, you can just hear the drums rolling in the background of Miriam's heart, wondering what's gonna happen. And you can just picture all of a sudden a calm, peace, as she sees everything's going to be okay. Now, this is amazing for lots of reasons, because it means that the daughter of the Pharaoh who had given the command for infanticide and genocide is now this daughter is adopting one of the Hebrew boys for her own. We don't know exactly why her father let it happen. Uh, one tradition says that she had previously given birth to a child, a daughter. We know she had a daughter who died at birth or shortly after birth. And so maybe she was grieving and maybe in the providence of God, the Pharaoh just thought, well, one little boy can't hurt. We don't know why, but he let Moses live. And Moses was reared in the palace at Thebes by a remarkable woman named Hatshepsut. He, Moses would have received from this princess who later became the queen of Egypt, he would have received the finest of finest of care and the finest education. He would have learned reading and writing and mathematics, linguistics, astronomy, and architecture, music and medicine and law. And he even would have earned, learned the art of diplomacy. He would have participated in outdoor sports like archery and horseback riding, two favorites of the 18th century dynasty. And this is why Stephen later says in Acts chapter seven and verse 22, that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. The Bible says that he actually lived in the palace for 40 years before he fled to the wilderness. 40 years in the palace. Uh, a historian by the name of Josephus, a Jewish historian tells us that he rose to prominence in the army of Egypt and actually became in charge of a division in Southern Egypt. He was very well known. He couldn't be Pharaoh, uh, but he was very well known and very qualified for leadership. But all this happened, think of it, all of this happened because a mother, because a mom by faith gave her child to God and trusted the care of her child to a God who knew better than she did. Here's my main point today. Here's my big idea. I told you I've got one big idea and here it is. There's nothing more beautiful than a mom who gives her children to God. There is nothing more beautiful in this world than a mom who gives her children to God. Now, I didn't know it this week, but Jochebed is mentioned in the New Testament. I've studied the Bible, I've preached the Bible for 18 years and I have never seen it until this week. Hebrews chapter 11 is what we call the great hall of faith where people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Moses and, and, and David and Solomon, these, these great heroes of the faith are named in the hall of faith. But notice what it says in Hebrews eleven twenty three: 23. By faith, I've never seen this like this till now. Moses's parents, that would have included Jochebed, his mother, hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Even Jochebed made the hall of faith. 
You can just hear it as you read Hebrews chapter 11, this big idea from today, this main point from today, that there's, there's nothing more beautiful, there's nothing more beautiful than a mom who gives her children to God. Here's why I want you to know that. Here's why I believe that's super important. Because mom, it is not your responsibility to be God to your children. You can take that load off of your back. You can take that pressure off of yourself. I know the world puts similar pressures on you. you if you're like me, or if you're like my wife, you, you put those pressures on yourself, but you don't have to be God. You see, the most beautiful thing in the world is not you being God, but it's you giving your children to God. It's very, it's beautiful when a young mom takes her baby in her arms for the first time and bows her head and says a word of prayer, not only of thanks, but also of dedication. God, I, I give this baby to you. It's a beautiful thing when a single mother chooses life and the harder path instead of a, an easier path of pain and death. It's a beautiful thing when a working mom brings her sadness to God for being away from her children, maybe more than she wants to be away from her children. She's feeling guilty. She's feeling beat down. She's seeing pictures of all the other moms and all the great things they're doing with their children during the pandemic and quarantine. And she's feeling guilty because of what the Lord has given her for this season of life, almost feeling as though she needs to be God whenever that's not God's plan for her life. It's a beautiful thing when a family who's not able to have children of their own adopt a child. It's beautiful when the family of, with other siblings together choose to bring a child into the home for foster care or for adoption. It's beautiful when we have dedication services on this platform a few times a year. And it's equally beautiful when you're snuggling with your child in bed or on the couch or on the back porch. And in your heart, you're just quietly again, giving your children to God. All throughout the scriptures, there's these pictures of moms giving their kids to the Lord. And I'm praying, I am praying that because of today's message, uh, we'll have some moms of infants and toddlers that again, you'll commit afresh and anew to stop trying to be God to your children, but you actually, again, give your kids to God. I'm praying for some elementary moms and some moms of elementary students who are homeschooled, public schooled, or private schooled, that again, you'll, you'll fresh and anew, you'll remember that those children are a gift from the Lord. And even on their hardest day, you are giving those kids to God. I'm praying for some parents of, of seniors in high school and maybe even some upperclassmen in college. And you're now having to give your children to God in a whole new way. Some of us are having to give our kids to God in ways that we didn't expect. Uh, I didn't prepare myself for the day they were going to leave home. And, and our tendency as parents, as our kids get older, is to hang on to them and somehow make life even harder for them. We like double down on our control because we're afraid of losing them. Oh, let's not do that. Let's help each other not do that. But instead, let's give our children to God. Why do I want you to do it? Because I believe there's nothing more beautiful than a mom who gives her children to God. You know, I've told the story today of Jochebed, Moses's mom. There's other women in the Bible we could talk about, women like Hannah or women like Sarah, Abraham's wife. But I wanna close today with a word about one other woman that we see in the New Testament who gave her child to God. 
In Luke chapter two, there's this young couple. They've got this baby and it was a Jewish practice for them to go to the temple and offer a, a sacrifice and, and thanks to God for their child. And so they, they brought their child for some what we might call a dedication service. And as they dedicated their child to the Lord, that child would grow up and they would come to learn that their child is not just a human, not just a boy, not just a man, but he was the God-man, Jesus Christ. That child is Jesus and that mother is Mary. From the very beginning, the prophet looked right at Mary in the temple and said that pain is going to pierce her soul one day over what would happen to Jesus. The gospel of John tells us that Jesus was there whenever, or Mary was there when Jesus was crucified. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks down at John and says, take care of your mother, behold your mother, take care of my mother who's now become your mother. You see, Jesus's suffering led to our salvation. Jesus went to the cross to die the death that we could never die. He paid the price that we could never pay. And he rose from the grave on the third day to give you life, to give you salvation. And my prayer is that today, if you've never put your faith in Jesus to decide to be a follower of Jesus, that you would decide that today, this day, this Mother's Day to become a follower of Christ. But on this day, let us also be thankful. Let us be thankful for Mary. Let's be thankful for what Mary did because the most beautiful thing in the world is a mom who gives her children to God. I'm praying for you moms. I'm praying for you dads. I'm praying for you kids that today will be a day we'll see God's grace through moms. Will you pray with me? God, I pray you would make it so. I pray we would see Jesus in our mothers. We would see Jesus in our circumstances. And God, while there's no perfect family, I pray that you would put people into all of our lives that we could point to Jesus or they could point us to Jesus himself. I pray for those far from you that they'll choose to be followers of Christ today. We thank you for moms. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.